outcomes relative to a new agent for diabetes management. Let's open the book on maintenance of certification. If you have advanced directives, you're more likely to die where you'd like to. And approval of high-risk medical device supplements by the FDA. That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins, posted on August 25th, 2017. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, president of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, and dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I think we need to turn right to the issue that's nearest and dearest to my heart. In Annals of Internal Medicine, a look at the positive impact of advanced directives with regard to helping people die where they would like to. I like the way you phrase that. It's not the healthcare provider deciding where patients die, but it's enabling persons to die where they choose. And that actually is now considered a key indicator of end-of-life care. How do you best accomplish that? And what are the characteristics of people that do accomplish that well? In the United Kingdom, they started what's called a CMC service. It's a Coordinate My Care service. And that enables patients to create a digital urgent care plan with their clinicians. And that urgent care plan is accessible to all health and social care professionals that are involved in that patient's care. How well did that do in allowing the person to choose their end-of-life care? They analyzed over 9,000 patients over a five-year period that had enrolled in the CMC plan. And what they discovered is in those patients, 78% died in their chosen location. And by the way, it's not surprising that about 98% of those preferred to be cared for and die outside of the hospital. So this suggests it is a huge success. They actually dug a little bit further too and say, were there characteristics of these patients that they could hang their hat on? What they discovered was that when the advanced care planning took the form of a recorded do not resuscitate order, that there was a 76% greater chance of achieving the preferred place of death than if that DNR order was not in place. As we're well aware, we all need to have discussions about our preferences with regard to end of life. And I believe that those need to start really early in life. In fact, I've suggested to you before that when someone gets a driver's license, they ought to start thinking about this issue and record those particular decisions right away. And I agree, Elizabeth, having these conversations with healthcare providers or making your wishes known are really a very positive gateway to achieving what the patient wants in terms of their future care. And that's also really important for families because if you are in a situation where your family needs to step up and make those kinds of decisions for you, if these things are in place, it also eases the burden for them. Good point. Okay, that's the one I'm going to do on the blog, I'll tell you right now. Let's go from here, we're in annals, to an issue that's near and dear to your heart. That is this issue for physicians of maintenance of certification. While many of our non-physician listeners may be yawning at this particular article, I chose it. This has been a very thorny issue. It's called maintenance of certification. Patients should have some sense of security in knowing that once we complete our medical training, physicians are required to take a board certification exam to prove that you're competent in your particular area. Those are administered by the American Board of Internal Medicine. Well, over the last decade, the ABIM Board of Directors has now recommended, mandated that people take what's called a maintenance of certification. That's ongoing training over a 10-year period, at which time you're supposed to take another recertifying exam. Well, it's never been proven that these maintenance of certifications improve the quality of care. They're very time-consuming. They're very costly, up to $10,000. As a result, one of the things the ABIM has now done is allow physicians to take these exams open book. 
What these investigators did, they took 825 physicians randomly assigned to one of four conditions. They either had a closed book, either in a short time period or gave them additional time period, or an open book test, again, short period and a longer time period. What they discovered was that there was really no difference between the outcomes of the test, whether it was closed or open book. It's just that the people that had an open book took longer to complete it because they're looking up answers. Having an open book test did not lower the discriminant value to decide between high and low performers. In fact, it actually improved a little bit. Now, I want to tie this into a podcast we did several weeks ago that showed that these, quote, nonprofit organizations that administer these tests had a net worth of over $770 million. I have real concerns that these maintenance certifications are costly, time-consuming, they don't contribute to the quality of care. I'm not sure we've even found the best way to test physicians to improve their knowledge gap. Having evinced all those concerns now, if you were the king of the forest, what would you do to help address them? Here's what I think should be done. Knowledge continues to increase. Evidence-based medicine changes as we develop more data. Is there ought to be some way of assessing where there's a gap and filling that gap for the particular physician? That's where I think we need to invest most of our interest, and I don't think the maintenance of certification examinations do that. Okay. I know we're going to hear more about this because, as I said, it's near and dear to your heart. Let's turn from here to the New England Journal of Medicine. I said, hey, a relatively new agent as one of a class of agents used to manage type 2 diabetes. What are the consequences of that? This newer agent is called a sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitor. Call it canagliflozin. It inhibits this particular pathway that has been shown to improve the surrogate markers associated with poor outcomes. It lowers hemoglobin A1C, weight, systolic blood pressure, and diastolic blood pressure. We've known before that things that change surrogate markers sometimes don't change really the hard outcomes, cardiovascular death or morbidity. So to address that, these investigators combine the results from two different trials that examine canagliflozin versus placebo in type 2 diabetics that were at high risk of cardiovascular disease. And what they discovered in looking at over 10,000 individuals who had had diabetes for about 13 and a half years, and two-thirds of them had a history of cardiovascular disease, canagliflozin, as compared to placebo, it lowered the risk of death from cardiovascular disease or a heart attack or a stroke by about 14% over the follow-up. That's really good. What about there was an impact on kidney disease too, right? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. It also decreased the spilling of protein, that is albumin in the urine, and it also seemed to decrease the progression of kidney disease as well. I'm interested in this issue of this agent versus placebo. I'm wondering about this agent versus things like metformin. In these individuals, they didn't choose this instead of standard therapy. They added this to standard therapy. People were getting standard therapy for their diabetes and standard therapy for the cardiovascular disease. Okay. And so finally, what about the side effects? There's an increased risk of urinary or urinary tract infections in both men and women. There's an increased risk of volume depletion. And then finally, something that was a little bit unusual, twice a higher risk of amputation of the toes or the distal part of the foot. Now, that rate was still very low, less than 1%, but at least it was a signal, something that we need to look for in the future. It looks like, in my opinion, the benefits outweigh the risk in most patients. Okay. And then finally for this week, you know, everything is near and dear to your heart this week since you've served on these FDA committees taking a look at devices, this study in JAMA, looking at, hey, what is the FDA doing with regard to approval of devices? Can we trust this stuff? 
All right, so Elizabeth, let me pose it to you. When you look at devices, do you want a very high level of certainty with regard to a lot of clinical studies, a lot of patients before a device is approved? Or are you willing to accept a modicum of evidence? I think, you know, I'm going to temporize on this one, and that's going to have to do with what kind of device is it? Is it a huge modification relative to its predecessors? What's the indication? How critical is the indication? So I have to temporize. So I'm throwing it back at you. Okay, so let me take a step back, and for our listeners that may not be aware, if it's a new medical device that carries the risk of injury or potential harm, it has to go through a pre-market approval. This is the most rigorous FDA device approval pathway. If there's already an existing device like it on the market, and all we're going to do is modify it somewhat, that takes a different pathway. And just to give our listeners an idea of what that looks like, from 1979 through 2012, there were over 5,800 supplements for 77 devices. So what these authors did was they said, okay, when you look at those supplements, how rigorous are the data? So they looked at 83 clinical studies that supported the approval of 78 panel track supplements. And what they discovered was that fewer than half were randomized or blinded or controlled and that most of the endpoints weren't the hard endpoints, they were the surrogate endpoints. So these findings suggest that the quality of the studies may need improvement. I'm going to take a step back because I've served on these panels, as you know, and I'd say that this is always a fine balance. Do we let the device out with, in our best estimate, is sufficient clinical information, or do we hold it for months or years and deprive patients of therapy that could be beneficial? I would say, first of all, what we need is terrific, well-trained, experienced staff at the FDA and on the panels that many of us serve on. That expertise gives us the ability to look at either smaller studies or non-randomized trials to see whether we should move it forward, and then further to advocate for post-marketing surveillance. That is, we can release the device, and in our best opinion, it's more beneficial and less harmful, and then evaluate it post-market as well. That allows us to get the device out, being properly evaluated, but continuing to monitor to see whether we were right or not. I would agree with that. So on that note, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all live well. <laughs>